Hey y'all and welcome back to another episode of the Crude Audacity podcast, the podcast that talks shop shit and all things strategy with oil patch influencers. I'm your host, Catherine Mills. Now today, if you haven't realized it yet, but I'm going to say most have, our industry, the oil industry, is about adaptability and ingenuity. Seeking, not waiting for opportunity, hard work, solutions, and work ethic. But right now, most of us are deciding if we really want to be here. And it's a scary time. Where will oil take us next, and what is the next frontier? Is it going to be the digital age? Is it international oil? Or is it something like deep water? Most importantly, what is your next opportunity in industry, and how will you get there? Today's influencer understands firsthand that it, what it means to be effective, adaptable, and persevere through the unknown. From deep water to onshore operations, she has stepped up to the plate early and is still swinging for the fences. The unknown is about seeking out new challenges and making the most of it. So today, Jacqueline Busick, welcome to the Crude Audacity podcast. Thank you. So I love your story. You really sought out hard challenges. You, you did not shy away. You understood what it meant to seek opportunity and be in the right place at the right time. And you really are why, or your story is really why, people get into STEM and then excel past it. So going ahead, tell us all of it. Get us started. How did you get into oil and gas? Why did you choose oil and gas? And how did you ascend the roles and responsibilities you have now? So I got accepted to Colorado School of Mines, and I thought I was going to be a physics major. Why? I have no idea at this point <laughs> in my life. I thought I was good at math, and it turns out I'm okay with math, but apparently I don't like calculus-baked physics. But So I enrolled in um, Colorado School of Mines as a, a physics major, and I got a letter one day in the mail from the head of the department at the time, Dr. Van Kirk, asking if I'd ever considered being a petroleum engineer. And I actually grew up in Firestone, Colorado, so I live in the middle of the DJ Basin, and I had no idea what a petroleum engineer was. Um, so I threw it in the trash and said, I'm not interested. I love that. <laughs> Does Kirk, Van Kirk know that you threw it in the trash? I'm, I'm sure my mother mentioned it at some point because uh, <laughs> the reason I ended up going and, and, and accepting the invitation to be exposed to the petroleum engineering is because my mother insisted. Um, <laughs> and it changed my life. I had the opportunity to go. I scheduled an appointment. And uh, my mom and I went down there and met with Dr. Van Kirk. And we spent four hours with Dr. Van Kirk and got to meet, I'm pretty sure it was Miss Gimmins. And okay. I think I met um, Dr. Graves while I was there, but I was, I'm sold. I'm like, oh, these people are nice and they're kind of country like I am. And from, <laughs> you know, they're from, tended to be from small, smaller places. They're and oil I'm, field. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't realize I was oil field at the time, but apparently that's what I was. And so it was a great experience. And that's how I decided to be, um, uh, declare as a petroleum engineering is, I wanted to have a mentor, and mm -hmm. that what ended up being um, Dr. Miss Gimmins um, for my freshman year. And I started taking classes at Mines and met with Miss Gimmins on a regular basis, and then did a Van Kirk's introduction to petroleum class. And I'm like, oh, this is actually really cool. <laughs> And I, I love this beats physics. Yay! <laughs> well, it was a good thing because I took physics and I barely passed it by the skin of my teeth. I realized calculus basic physics was not for me. I shouldn't make a career out of it. <laughs> so um, 
I, I really like the fact there was so much variety in petroleum engineering um, that there's so, so you can travel. There's just you, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to specialize in, whatever you want to accomplish, there is a career in petroleum engineering for mm-hmm. you. And I love the fact that you don't get boxed into one little place unless you let somebody do it. It's lovely that you say that because a lot of people think we are so niche, and that's not true at all. We have the most transferable skills, I think, of any engineering capacity out there. We really do. Um, I had the opportunity to do my MBA later on, and I didn't realize, um, I think we get so focused on what we do as petroleum engineer, but when you start talking to other people outside the industry, all of those skills are transferable and very marketable. Mm Mm-hmm. 100%. So you're going through classes and you decide you like it. How does that, what does that translate into until internships and things like that? Um, my first internship was between my sophomore and junior year. And I worked for Kermagee out in the DJ Basin um, as a production engineer. And I actually was a local girl. So I showed up and they're like, oh, she's a local girl. We have a pumping uh, route that we need done. And she's, she can, we can send her out there by herself and it'll be just fine. So she I, won't get lost. She won't get lost. <laughs> and luckily, Weld County is actually a grid system. So as long as you know evens versus odds, you can manage 95% of it. <laughs> but it was a great experience. I pumped out there on the Goodison Ranch for a, about eight weeks. And I trained my replacement, which was another um, intern. And I'm happy to say the wells were still running when I left. So I okay. did a good job. Nothing blew up. Nothing blew up. <laughs> um, and then I moved into the office and I did some comparative analysis on frac, different frac types. Um, that was when they were still doing mostly vertical in the DJ basin, as many people know, was um, famous for being able to be refract. And mm-hmm. so we were comparing second, third, fourth fracs of different types. And that was really interesting. Um, and I basically did all my work that I was supposed to accomplish in uh, about half the time. And so they started making more projects for me. And by the end, they're like, we and the production operations group have ran out of projects for you. <laughs> so go talk to drilling. And so I went down and I started talking to drilling and did a couple, uh, one little project. And that's when I figured out I kind of like building stuff. Yeah. And that's when I, people asked me to describe what I do. I literally build a well from scratch. Yeah. And, and that's. I and got, it's an art. <laughs> it is. I mean. So that's um, when I decided to do that. I finished that um, internship, and they said, we want you to come back for a next internship. And I said, oh, I would love to. Everyone who can't get internships right now is, like, jealous. <laughs> yes. Well, I, it, it, was a, it was different um, than, obviously, in uh, graduated in 07, so 05, 06. It was, once you got into sophomore, it was, if you have a good reputation and were willing to work and move, you, yeah. were, you were able to get some. Which is awesome about our industry. It is. And paid. Thank goodness. That was so nice. I was able to pay for most of my college because we had paid internships, which yeah. is wonderful. Mm-hmm. So Kermagee asked, so what internship would you like next year? And I said, well, what's the most challenging? And <laughs> Again, seeking that opportunity. <laughs> I did. And so I, I said, I'd like, uh, I said, deep water drilling. And I said, I would, I want to do that. So it was all set up, and a lot of people who knew me were like, you're going to go do, go to Houston and do deep water drilling? I'm like, yeah. They're like, you've never been out of the state by yourself. You don't particularly like leaving. I'm like, but I want to do this. This sounds but like... But did you know what deep water actually was? Like, some people, they know what offshore is, but do they really know what deep water is? Well, that that definition's changed over the years mm-hmm. um, by the, just the water depth. But I just thought it was cool. It's a little island out in the, the ocean that did it, and I love the ocean. And I'm like, I like challenges. So this will be wonderful. Yeah. So I went back to school and I ended up getting that internship. So I moved down to Houston for the summer and 
it, that that internship changed my life. I met still mentors of mine today. I met Mike Stockinger and Nancy Seiler, who I still speak to on a regular basis. That's awesome. <laughs> and I was able to do all kinds of things. I did about three or four different projects. I'm actually still part of the hydrill manual because one of my projects was to investigate a casing failure and they thought it was the connection and we really we rewrote the hydro running procedures mm-hmm. for a large bore casing at the time and it's still in there and how you run them and then I got to spend all kinds of time on the rig running all the next three or four strings of casing as an intern as an intern I did all kinds of tests I had probably more responsibility operationally than I did for the first two years of my career in that internship. It was mind-blowing uh, mind for me to turn around and everybody's like looking at this intern saying, oh, you have to make the decision. There's nobody else to make it. <laughs> so it was a great experience. I just got to spend probably about four weeks on the rig during that time too. Okay. And I just, the technology, the people, the the um, helicopter flights, I just thought it was super cool. Yeah. How was that training? Oh, the helicopter training has changed a lot. The first one I went on, they literally had screwed a seats onto a rail and turned you upside down, and then in a pool, right? In a pool. Oh my god! And continuing uh, on, they when I did it later in, in my career, they had these big plastic and, and like mock helicopters that they turned upside down. So it came a long way. So, <laughs> in in a way, I really got to see. Um, the change in the industry from mm-hmm. when I had my internship in 06 to when I actually got to drill offshore as the lead engineer. So. What did you think about living on rig for four, four full weeks? Uh, Middle of nowhere, ocean. <laughs> it was really good, except for the first time I went out there, I forgot my poker money. <laughs> and on that rig, it was a big deal. But eventually, uh, they, the superintendent at the time let it leak out that I had been in school. Of po- I dealt poker. So the guys gave me a loan, and eventually I was able to play poker with them. And it really helped with my relationships and I being part of the that. crew. <laughs> um, it, it was fascinating to me. Um, I loved living offshore. We, but I, you know, we were treated very. They wanted me to have a good experience, so exactly. I was considered like a VIP. And every, every time I went out there, since I was the manager of the rig, mm-hmm. after that, it was it's a different experience than living on it and being on there every single day. They um, at one point they had eight, you know, eight room people to a room, and this the first rig Tight I was quarters. on. Yeah, mm-hmm. the first rig I was on, they had six people to a room. So, but I they I also had a room with just, they had special rooms for just two people or so. So mm-hmm. they. They obviously wanted to make sure I was well taken care of, <laughs> and um, not. I didn't act like an, a geologist. Sorry, geologist. The uh, the intern for the geologist forgot their tennis shoes and didn't have their house shoes. That's a big thing. You can't wear your dirty boots inside the quarters. So you want to make sure you make a good impression and don't trash their house. So it was a great experience. So okay, so that's your internship. You come back to school and you're focused on becoming a deep water engineer. Well, that actually was interesting. So I got offered, that was when Kermagee and Anadarko were bought out. And okay. I was actually offered a full-time job with Anadarko. And at the time, Anadarko said it'll be seven years before you can do deep water. That's because painful. It was. And I, by that time, I knew that was my goal. I wanted a, I wanted to be an exploration deep water drilling mm-hmm. engineer. And, I'm, and youth is a wonderful thing. Our impatience is great, but it's also <laughs> influences our decisions. So I'm like, I don't want to wait seven years. I'm we gonna, found a way around it. <laughs> I did find a way around it. So I ended up taking a full-time job with Chevron and uh, I didn't get to do deep water or, or drilling. I did uh, completions, and I did a couple projects. Um, I never got to go to the rigs to do it, but I did a couple projects that involved completions deep water, and I'm really glad I got to do that. It expanded okay. my knowledge base, and 
Um, also, it's let me. It's pretty complicated. It is. It um, it's very complicated, and the little details can make such a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and the safety valve. We I did projects on safety valves and okay. failure analysis, and did all kinds of interesting things. But I learned that I'm not a big company person, and that not a big company. I am not a big company person. Why is that? I. I like to be able to see my impact on mm-hmm. a company, and the with, in, without having internships in Chevron, I didn't have the sponsorship from upper levels. I needed to maneuver into the company okay. and get to the right spots so I could do um, what I wanted to do. And in fairness, they offered me some interesting opportunities that just weren't operational okay. the way I wanted to. But it, I, it made it invaluable for negotiating because most of Deepwater is big companies. So yeah, when I yeah. went to a smaller company, I knew how the big companies work, and I was able to maneuver my smaller company mm-hmm. because of that knowledge. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate the experience. I just knew that if I want to do what I wanted to do and the growth, I just wasn't the right spot. So once I figured that out, I reached out to some of my mentors, and Mike Stockinger came back into my story, <laughs> and he was over at Murphy Oil. Yeah. And um, Murphy Oil at the time would not hire anybody that had less than five years of experience. I've heard about this. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. and which is a good and a bad thing. Like some companies are set up to um, train younger people, and some yeah. companies aren't. And it takes a lot. People don't realize until you've done it how much energy and time it takes to have an intern or train somebody to do it well. Very true. And there's you can't pe- always let them fly by the seat of their pants. You cannot. And it's the balance, and it depends on the person and exactly what they're doing, and how much, how far you can push them in the deep end and let them swim and still be there to catch them and teach them what they need to know. So it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a huge balance, and it, it does. The, the amount of time when I finally got into that part of my career was absolutely amazing. So I, and now I understand it, but when I was there, <laughs> Being my impatient younger self, I'm going. Why does it matter? I'm. Re- I can do that job. <laughs> I just did it for a whole internship. Are you kidding? <laughs> so uh, they actually didn't have the opportunity to do deep water at the time, but they needed a completion engineer in Canada. So I moved up to Canada and started doing completion work up there. And I learned more in that probably year than I have ever since because we were doing exploration and exploration is really unique because you there's no answer it's not like you can look over the fence and say hey that person's doing it yeah you can't follow your neighbor so to speak Mm -mm. so we got to in that year i redesigned the or was part of redesigning the completion techniques um anywhere we used open hole we did cobra max we did plug and perv we tried it all we tried it all and uh, we tried several different uh, approaches to each um we also did all kinds of different fractures we did um co2 foaming fractures we did water we did lng i did an oil frack i so really i I did all kinds of very interesting things and i got to spend a decent amount of time um in the field about three months when i started so that was really helpful too yeah spending time in the field is probably the best thing you can do as an operation engineer when you're learning because it it makes your ability to communicate with the people that work with you Mm -hmm. so much better when you actually know what they're looking at and seen the challenges Well, one of the things you said to me, which I know we'll get to later through this interview, but you said, Catherine, you need to know your rig. If you don't know your rig, you can't communicate. doesn't matter what your engineering background is. 
So no, it's very true, and it, you need to know the challenges. The challenges in South Texas um, environmentally are very different than mm-hmm. they are in Dawson's Creek, um, British Columbia, mm-hmm. and the same thing onshore versus offshore and logistics and everything else. It's it's really important you know what challenges your teams are facing. Yeah, and if you've never been there, if you've never experienced it, it's very hard to relate. I would agree. Okay, so you're doing that. So where do you go next? How do you evolve um, into? Because you're really what you're doing is you're building an operational background. It w- yes, and this was not my plan at all. I wanted to do drilling right away, and I didn't get the opportunity to do that. <laughs> and, How dare they? <laughs> well, and in fairness to the gentleman that hired me, Murphy David Harris, he was the vice president of drilling and completions at the time. Um, he had said, you go and do this for me, and when there's a deep water oper- uh, opportunity, we'll make sure you get that. So it was a trade-off. It was a negotiation, and yeah. um, it, he was a man of his word. And uh, so I did that uh, completions for about a year, and then I did probably three months to six months of drilling up in Canada. I did some heavy oil drilling, which is very interesting. The first rig I actually ran was a Kelly rig with the belt drive. So wow, <laughs> these are only a thousand foot. It was a little coring. You were trying to see how thick the um, sands were, but yeah. it was very interesting. And I've never been on a rig like that since. So it was good. Can't to, imagine. It was great to experience that. Um, and then I started, I did a couple wells in the Montney up there at the, the newer, we weren't to walking rigs yet. They were still box on box, but they had the really nice top drives and mm-hmm. things like that. So the fancier technology, a lot fancier <laughs> compared to the Kelly drive. Um, so I, uh, we, in May, uh, Macondo had happened mm-hmm. and in June I actually got transferred. This is in 2009. Um, so I got transferred down to the Gulf of Mexico team in Houston okay. slash Eagleford team. They, so they were doing exploration in the Eagleford, and they needed another engineer. So I was going to do um, Eagleford exploration, and I I personally love exploration. That's my favorite thing to do when it comes to drilling or completion. It's so challenging. It is. It's so challenging because you don't know necessarily what to do. Um, you don't want to screw it up because then you could ruin a play. You could ruin a company. Uh, to some degree, I guess you could. <laughs> um, but it was really interesting. I think I drilled the fourth well for the company at the time in the, at the Eagleford. And it was in Carnes County, and I ended up drilling about 17 altogether. So... It was interesting. That was the first core I was in charge of. We took a core there and did um, some other things. So that was a good experience. But it it taught me a lot because we were using an old box and mop box rig, and a lot of the other companies were using newer rigs. And you were starting to see the flex rigs come out, and they were a lot more automated. Okay. So the change in the rigs for onshore were starting to happen, and you're starting to work towards the more – um, unconventional play rigs that now mm-hmm. you set the rigs and you can slide them and exactly so that that was during that phase and I ran that rig for about two years but about six months into it um, Murphy had dry stacks on one of uh, our production platforms with a drilling rig on top and so they needed somebody to run that rig so I was actually the first person to go back to work um, in after Macondo in the Gulf of Mexico for Murphy. For, no, for the for the whole... We were the first people back to work after Macondo. That is awesome. It was very awesome. That's it, intimidating also. <laughs> well, it, it was um, a very humbling experience. There was a team lead there who eventually became my boss, Chris Larino, and a manager. Andy Patricus was 
the manager there and they came in and said well we want you to be in charge of it Chris had already done all the the screening tool and that was the first flow and capture, capture screening tool which is after Macondo, some of the, the some of the changes they made where you had to pass a screening tool that went to the regulatory bodies before you could actually drill a well. Interesting. So, and this was a lot of the companies had passed oh what being able to control a well without flowing. Mm-hmm. This is really it's a technical thing, but anyway, so it was a, another first too. It was uh, the flow and capture and being a, the ability to capture if there was a blowout uh, on how we how we would manage a blowout is basically exactly. what it was. So it's all response to Macondo. Mm-hmm. So we go back to work and I, nothing went right on that well and I learned so much. <laughs> um it, the bottom line is is when you leave um unconsolidated sands open, <laughs> it affects everywhere around it and it becomes a nightmare to try to get through them again. 100%. It, it seems like yeah. Yeah, so yeah. it was I don't want to say obvious, but like it seems like that would cause some issues there. Well, I, you know, geology still wanted to drill ahead, so we decided we'd try, <laughs> but I ended up um we fought it for a while and we ended up making the decision to come and complete a hole after we tried to uh, to drill out the bottom and we also tried to do a couple side tracks. So, I Interesting. that's when I learned how to do side tracks. It was a very a very good experience. So, you were both onshore and offshore kind of at the same time. I did for about a year and a half. I ran on an onshore rig and an offshore rig. What yeah. is life like that? It was very busy. So the other important thing to note with Murphy is they didn't run superintendents. And for people who aren't familiar with that. Yeah, you guys have to explain that a little bit. Um, the drilling engineer does a lot of the engineering technical stuff. And then the superintendent will run, will help run the rigs day to day. He's normally a guy that worked his way up on the rigs and really knows how it works. Yeah. And it team, then you kind of put, combine those two things. It's like an army sergeant and a, the officer working together to run the rig. Okay. And um, because Murphy didn't run those, I got the opportunity to learn so much more than I would if that person was there. Okay. And so you basically you had to stretch outside of your role. I did, and I learned a lot. And for the for that company, the 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 head company man would help with some of that duty, and then the manager would help with that duty. Mm-hmm. But you get calls all the time, is what it comes down to. I was on call twenty four seven, and really learned so much. I wouldn't. And the other thing is, you don't have somebody else to make those decisions with unless you call the manager so you kind of you know you're we have egos that's why we do what we do and yeah everyone has them you call the manager only when you want to when you have to probably is the right way to say (laughs) that and um then you at the company man and i would try to figure out a lot of those problems and not elevate them unless you had to so that's when i i learned a lot about how to be a good manager because you don't think of it at that point, but you really are managing these projects. Mm-hmm. And hundred percent, you have to manage down and you have to manage up. Um, I had tons of growth during this period of my time, and I worked my butt off. And when I would get frustrated, the team lead would tell me, "Keep your head down and work hard." Mm-hmm. And that was that's my, what our industry is all about. And mm-hmm. it it always seemed to work out. And when you do that, you you and just make what you want to do known and keep your head down and work hard and if you become the person that they can rely on to do that the opportunities are endless 100 percent. so did you move 100 percent onshore after this or did you or excuse me offshore after this or did you come back onshore no i i moved all the way offshore um after i about two or a year and a half like i said doing that and i got to drill the first exploration well that the company did after macondo mm-hmm. um and 
that was a very interesting experience because I designed it from the start, did, did all the permitting projects, mm-hmm. um, and then I got to drill the, the rig or drill the well and um, pick up a rig and do the whole nine yards. So it was an incredible, it's probably the crowning jewel of my technical experience um, at this point, being able to design that and then run the rig. and. Mm-hmm. It was a wonderful experience. It took about a year to do that, and we ended up finding a non, non-commercial oil find, is what they call it. Okay. So, but it was a great experience and very challenging. Um, I worked tons at that point, and I had accomplished all my technical goals, so I decided to take some time off after that because <laughs> I wanted to reevaluate work-life balance for me. That exactly. was. I'm, I'm really proud of what I did, but I knew... I needed to have some more balance, and it wasn't going to happen at that company at the mm-hmm. time. And I'm very grateful for them to giving me those opportunities. But how long were you offshore? What was your time frame? I want to say we did offshore for about four years altogether. That is so unique in terms of our industry because so many people aspire to that, and you got the opportunity not only as an intern but much faster than that seven-year rotation that some of us go through. And honestly, a lot of people don't seek out those technical challenges like that. So, I mean, did you were there a lot of females? Was it predominantly male-dominated? Did you have female leads like? Um, I never, this is a very interesting, I never thought about that when I, that's just what I wanted to do. So I made it known to the people that made those decisions that that's what I wanted to do. But It's like the best answer. <laughs> it is. I, I didn't even think about it. And it wasn't until I started doing my MBA and reflecting on it. At one point I knew um, the Drings DNC team at Murphy had 75% women in it. Um, there were only four people in the team. but Really? So that was a unique thing. There were myself and two um, female completion engineers. Hell yes. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm not a, bra- a bra burner by any means, but I love seeing more integration with, uh, you know, men and women within these kind of more technical roles. Well, the other thing I found out later um, is that I... I'm actually am the, was the only female engineer ever to be doing drilling at Murphy at the time. That might be still true today. I'm not sure. I don't work there anymore. But it was it was one of those things like oh yeah, it doesn't I never looked at it that way. I was just this is what I wanted to do, and I wanted I always want to be the best at what I'm doing. And, exactly because you are not a female engineer. You are an engineer. Well, and there were a couple of people. There was a couple of times after I'd quit my job that people came and. Um, called and wanted to recruit me because I was a, a female deep water drilling engineer and I li- almost hung up well actually I did hang up on a couple of them because you shouldn't want to hire me because I'm a female engineer exactly you I'm should, not your quota I am the very best at what I do I was 29 and doing an exploration well all by myself mm-hmm. you should want to hire me because of that not exactly. because of and so I, I have a I have I have mixed feelings on this and I, I don't really like to talk about it I just do what I want to do and mm-hmm. Um, nobody told me it wasn't okay to do it. So I love that. <laughs> just do what you want to do. And, and the other thing I think is important when you start having this conversation is it's your job. I don't care if you're a guy or a girl. Um, when you go work at a company, whatever its corporate culture is or the job finding the people in those jobs, mm-hmm. you need to be able to relate to them. And 100%. So I am super versed on uh, basketball, on football, on NASCAR. <laughs> I know more about fishing and hunting than I ever care to do. But those are, And I know a lot about cars. I really like cars. But, and the symphony. And, and the symphony. <laughs> but, and, but I... 
I just I did that because I'd wanted to be part of the group and yeah. I still actually I really like sports so it worked out just fine for me but <laughs> it was it was very very interesting to me everybody's like aren't you tired I'm like no it, I mean every once in a while I get tired of talking about that stuff and so I'd find somebody to have lunch with that I could talk something about it but <laughs> one of the most thoughtful gifts I ever got was somebody gave me tickets to the symphony as a thank you because they knew me it mm-hmm. wasn't it was just really interesting so that's one of the things when people ask me well how do I get better or how do I move up in the company is become part of the company become part of the group we have to we have teams and we have to be part of them mm-hmm. and there's you need to fit in. You need to make an effort. And I don't care what age you are. I don't care what gender you are. I, you have to make an effort to be part of a group. It just doesn't 100%. happen. 100%. So you decide to leave uh, offshore. You come back onshore. And our market is changing. So what was your experience there? Well, I, I took a couple months off. Um, I quit in October 2014. And <laughs> I had a couple of offers before, right after I quit and did some interviews. And I said, I want to wait until January and after I'd done, or February, and after I'd done some vacationing and got, yeah. took some time. And by then, the market had really started to change. And I was very, the time I thought I wanted to go back and do offshore, and then I realized I just needed to do whatever I could do to to work. I mean, yeah, the market had significantly changed, and I looked for quite some time, um, about a year and a half, and I applied to all kinds of jobs, and it I it was a very humbling experience because you're one of the most technically trained people available, and you still had to like hustle to find something. I uh, well, I was there's always somebody. It's like football, there or there's always somebody that's going to be more trained than you and have more experience. So I was, if you yeah. my age, my age group, I was. The problem is there's not a lot of people in my age group, and there's always somebody more experienced. Correct. And um, it it was a very like I said, it was really humbling. I start I applied to all kinds of stuff, and I never I. I I wish recruiters would at least tell you, hey, they hired somebody to help besides you. I mm-hmm. hate them not replying back and saying, hey, you didn't get the job. That drives mm-hmm. me nuts. But um, <laughs> A lot of people are going through that right now. It is. So it actually took me a year and a half, and I then I did some contract work for somebody I had known, and I did a, it was a very interesting project in Africa. I did a review for a project, so that was interesting and I started doing my MBA at the time um, okay. I was seriously considering I needed you know I can only go so long with not having um, any opportunity or full-time income and mm-hmm. I need to so uh, I think an MBA would make me it makes you very marketable with your engineering degree to yeah. change so I did that and I, I realized that through this period how much I loved oil and gas I love the people I love the challenge I love our industry mm-hmm. and so I kept my nose to the grindstone and I didn't tons of um, interviews and then I found some more contract work did a couple more things for contract and finally about three and a half years later I got the opportunity to start working full-time in a role I didn't hadn't even thought about Um, I became a production engineer (laughs) and um, since I was I realized by that time what I wanted in my life um, Mm -hmm. is a more work-life balance yeah Um, production engineering um, definitely does that Uh, but it's one of those was things it was humbling to be patient to work hard to I mean I did lots of other work while I was not working mm-hmm. but it it's hard you have to persevere through the down times to enjoy the good times so to speak right and it, it's it's hard and it's it it hurts your super ego it hurts your <laughs> I mean it hurts your feelings I mean we're all human we want to we want to hear yes exactly. we want to hear that, that the opportunities still exist and 
Well, from your experience, jumping back onto the onshore versus offshore versus the changes in our industry with Macondo, what was the pre, what is the post? What is, from both spectrums, what what do you notice from having been, you know, in the beginning, seen the disaster and then come back on? Um, there were several things that happened post Macondo. Um, one, the industry is much better able to handle a response if there's a spill. Um, we were very... We definitely needed to up our game in our response for spills. It, yeah. It, it needed to happen. Um, I think that's ex- when you start and look at the timeline and the history and what it happened with Macondo, we weren't ready as an industry to deal with that. The other it thing... It surprised everyone. <laughs> it did. Um, and it was not the first um, blowout they've had. It's just the... It was just the one that changed the industry. <laughs> the one that caught social media's eye. <laughs> maybe, or, or I don't know, this is not my area of expertise, but they maybe they weren't as strong or shallower. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what the issue was previously. but uh, So the other thing that happened is the screening tool came out, which is a check and balance to be able to drill a well okay. or, or, or sidetrack a well or run the casing. Well, it, it forced <laughs> a change in casing sizes and you had some technical redevelopment of the industry. Mm-hmm. When you go from 13 and, and 5.8 to 14 and a 14 inch casing, there wasn't casing running tools. There wasn't liner hangers you had this step change and it took a while for the industry to catch up there mm-hmm. so we had to re the other thing is our industry is based on repeatability yes we've done it over and over and over and even though every single offshore well is redesigned for its specific perfect purpose 13 and 5 eighths was that that string that we ran and when we moved away from it there was a lot of changes and that's when you also see the big changes in the rigs mm-hmm. because they needed to be able to do the string weights to be able to do to meet the screening tool and also the demand of as we moved out for deeper water but yeah. so all these things go co- coincide post macondo and then the third thing that really affects the industry and it's a change is when beep the government went after people who were involved in the spill. Yeah. And the... Individuals. Le- mm-hmm. So the legal um, ramifications of the job definitely changed. I mean, we're always responsible for what what we do, but it was highlighted that the, the risk and the exposure for the companies and the people doing it is was brought to life. Mm-hmm. The final change that I noticed post-Macondo is the barrier to entry for small companies. Um, You started to see the deep gulfs and some other companies get bought out by bigger companies. And that barrier to entry now is all the regulatory and background information you need to do before you can start drilling and the cost that's associated with it. So that's both onshore and offshore, if you think about it. To some degree, yes, but you're talking 10 to probably $20 million just to get your HSE and reporting and all your criteria done before you even put um, a bit in the ground. Then you have to buy all the acreage. So the other thing that, that just the cost of drilling went up so much. So instead of starting a company with a quarter a billion dollars or a billion dollars, you're talking multiple billions, and it's just it's hard to raise that kind of capital. Do you think offshore is going to be the new frontier, or do you think international or, I mean, digital age, all of that? What, do you think offshore is going to lead the, the charge out of this downturn? You know, that's an interesting question, and I, I'm not sure I have a good answer for it. I know 
this, the step change between onshore and offshore production drives the investment offshore. You're talking wells come on at 20,000 barrels a day versus mm-hmm. that's where they start. Some of them times you can go higher sometimes, and then the decline curves are so much more. So the amount of oil and how that affects the company bottom line is very different than uh, onshore. Onshore, you know, you're talking 1,000 to 3,000 is a really good well. Yeah. And the time, the time payout curves are just so different. Um, the investment offshore is much bigger. The time to, to production is much bigger. I think there's still a lot of oil to be found offshore. I'll be really interested to see if we ever get to do more exploration around California, um, Florida, the East Coast, Alaska. There's lots of places to do offshore. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll be interested to see politically if we ever do anything there. Yeah. And the other thing is technology is, keeps getting pushed for offshore um, they're working on 20K stacks. They have uh, dual gradient drilling. Dual uh, gradient. And they've uh, Chevron actually did some tests on that, and there's a rig available to do that. Um, so there's just tons and tons of things happening offshore technology-wise, and they keep pushing because the, the reward is just so big. So yeah. I think you're still going to see a lot of offshore stuff. Um, and I think as your geologists and technology on that end and finding the oil continues to advance going from 2D to 3D to 4D seismic mm-hmm. um, and being able to negotiate some of those faults and salt domes and things you couldn't do before, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. That's really cool. How do you, in uh, reservoir engineer, production engineer, geologist, even like just rig hands, how do they in these in this time uh, i guess position themselves to eventually go offshore first off go work for a company that has offshore it's very hard to go (laughs) offshore um if you don't have that aspect but showing your interest um going to classes that have to do with offshore yeah letting people know that's what you want to do and positioning yourself so you can do that at most of the larger companies that have it have mentors available and people that plan your your career so just keep plugging away at it mm-hmm. um i think that if i remember correctly the geologists and geophysicists a lot of has to do with where you did your master's and phd and if you've done basin studies and things like that so i would believe that they, they're pretty strenuous on all of that <laughs> but from an engineering standpoint it's just try to get involved take whatever little wedge that you can take to get to get your foot in the door whether it's Something that you don't want to do, but you know you'll make the right contacts and just keep working at it. So manifest destiny. You yep. want it? Figure it out. Yep. So now you're on the production side. You've seen almost all sides of operations at this point. So really, what is the biggest difference onshore uh, production versus an operations engineer? And what do you need to actually ascend into becoming an operations engineer versus just a production engineer? Well, I guess that depends on what your definition is. When I, uh, Everyone has a different one. <laughs> oh. So to me, drilling and com- there's a drilling engineer, a completion engineer, and then a production engineer, and uh-huh. an operations engineer is basically does all three. Okay. That's how I've always looked at it. Okay. Um, and that's currently what my job is evol- evolved into, So, <laughs> which is fine with me. But the big difference between... Um, between production and drilling and completion is 24-7 operations. Drilling rigs and completion rigs run 24-7. Uh, production rigs um, will normally work 7-7. Seven to seven. You will sometimes have projects where they work 24-7, but it's not as normal. Mm-hmm. The other thing is the production rigs shut down 
for holidays and can shut down for weeks. So it's a different schedule. All the fun things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the other challenge is the type of hands that run the rigs, in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. You're going to tend to have better hands on drilling rigs and because um, they, they pay better. The pay better. Okay, I was going to say, why is that? But yeah. it, it's just that draw. And you normally, a lot of people will work, onshore can work their way up. They'll start as a, you know, a work overhand and then work their way on the drilling rigs or completion crews. They can do it that way. And work, work over rigs and drilling rigs are more sympathetic than mm-hmm. completions. But it's, it's So that's a way to work your way up if you're interested on that side. <laughs> um, the other big difference between operations and or sorry production in dnc is production is dealing with the result of dnc okay and so drilling completion engineer make the well but production has the history or deals with the the ramifications of dnc okay and so that's really interesting and I think that's one thing we don't do a good job at as an industry is we're focusing on the wrong metrics when it comes to this. We're working so drilling is drilled by, is driven by how fast and how cost effective you can drill a well. So you're really talking about KBIs changing here. Yes. Okay. So drilling especially for the unconventionals it's how efficient can we be? What can we change to make it more efficient and more cost effective mm-hmm. regardless of how it affects the well in most cases they're mm-hmm. they're trying to hit their kpi yeah and then completion is doing the same thing well if we don't clean out the well after we do it or we make this decision we don't have that cost to us mm-hmm. but production mm-hmm. is dealing with the wells itself afterwards and those you know you drilled the well a half a day faster but you have a really crazy well bore and you can't run rod pumps could we have done it spent that extra half a day or designed it slightly different to not have that issue and you had more options on the back end yeah um not cleaning out the well bore might sound like a great plan for completions but i have wells that we're currently facing well it's not worth cleaning out the well bore which they didn't do when we should have done it and Mm -hmm. now we can't afford to do it so Mm -hmm. it's kind of what does it cost you and we need to kind of rephrase our kpis to be a whole whole operations from the life of the well to the end of the well Mm -hmm. yeah end of well life is becoming more and more of a topic these days i've noticing just even in the media well and if you look at it we're starting to be more cash flow driven yeah and that is something that plays into it the cash flow if you save x amount of workovers or you save um in the long run you're going to spend more time doing workovers than you are going to drill a well so does that half a day that saves you fifty thousand dollars really save you on the back end we Mm -hmm. need to have a different conversation well i will say even coming from an integrated team i have been in the position where i've talked to the completions i do the geo i talk to the drillers and we get everything going early life of well and after it's passed off to the production team we sort of forget about it until i have to do some sort of quarterly review So are you noticing that production, even on more integrated teams, as we're seeing that roundtable mentality uh, enter into offices, are are they not joining the conversation early enough or not doing well lookbacks efficiently enough? Like, where can we improve there in terms of team communication? 
Well, I, I fully admit, as a drilling engineer, I never really cared after I finished the well. Exactly. So, um, Even as reservoir. Yeah. So it, I don't know that the solution is or how other people... Now, since I'm in charge of all of them... <laughs> you really care. I, 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 I only have one person to blame, so I yell at myself. <laughs> but um, I've really started to notice that, um, how you do that as um, change. It's a corporate culture and how we drive things and what we how you want to address it. It's going to be on a... Uh, it would probably be easier for smaller companies to do it. When you get to a Chevron or a BP, there's just so many people there's involved. so many people. And the state gauge and every and what everybody's responsible for. It. I don't know how you do it there, um, but mm-hmm. the smaller companies, you really should be able to, to have that conversation. In some levels, the production engineer needs to be raising their hand at the beginning when they're planning the well. and yeah. or, or the drilling engineer needs to have talked to the production engineer and realize, hey, if you have bigger than this degree of dog legs or you hold the tangent more than this angle, mm-hmm. you can't run a, a pump, pump jack and you need, to use a, you need to use a jet pump and it just really limits your options mm-hmm. and it, the cost of the, and it changes the cost of production. So. Yeah. I'll be interested to see how, as an industry, we, we adapt and move. And I'm probably not the first person to say that or recognize it. It's mm-hmm. just that's since I'm now doing all of them and I'm taking over wells that it was obvious I didn't care about how they did that mm-hmm. and how it affects my decision making and maybe it's better for me to talk about it now. Yeah, I feel like the field is finding its voice more and more. We're recognizing as an industry that just because you're in the firm does not mean you cannot communicate with your field and that has been a rampant discommunication or disconnect uh, throughout the history of our industry. So I don't know. I've learned more from field guys than I have from most people in the office. But what do you think about the communication between field and firm? That's a that's a great point. It goes uh, back to your point of know your rig. <laughs> it does. Um, so hands down, the most influential people um, when I was at Murphy were the field guys. And yeah. I would not be the engineer I am today without them patiently teaching me about the rig kindly teaching (laughs) and um i never got the opportunity to sit a rig and and learn learn the way i would have liked to i would have liked to spend a year sitting the rig and working my way up to maybe being a night company man i never got that opportunity because of the way the op the the company needed yeah people at the time but I spent as much time out there as I could, and it's it's important for two things. One, you need to know how a rig works. You need to learn how wireline, frack pumps, pump jacks work over rigs because they're actually very different than very different <laughs> than drilling rigs. Um, you need to know that mm-hmm. uh, to make good decisions for planning and what rigs can can and can't do, and what people can and can't do. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is. You need to be able, as a manager, to create that buy-in. Mm-hmm. And if people don't think that they're, they matter or their opinions are valued, they're not going to give you their best. It's your job to cultivate a culture of giving your best. There's a great saying, um, "Never let uh, good, better, best. Never let your good become better than your best. Ooh. So it's an, I remember my grandpa saying it, and it's one of those interesting things. If you want to bring the best out of people, they need to know that their opinions are valued. They need to know that they care and that you you think about what you're, they're doing. You're not just making a decision because it's best for mm-hmm. you. You're making a decision what's best for the well, and sometimes that's explaining. Mm-hmm. Sometimes telling them it's going to be a different way, and sometimes it's it doesn't really matter. We can do it six different ways. You're always just fine because there's no health or safety issue with yeah. it. We're going to get the same results. So it's 
figuring out how to manage and cultivate those relationships. It's so important. Your your whole operation depends on that. You can mm-hmm. have the best program in the world, and if they don't do it, there's no point of you writing a program. <laughs> I like that. But you do have to go back to your field team and understand and be able to communicate what they are seeing because they're on the ground every day telling you how it works, basically. Well, and this also comes back to a culture change we're seeing. Is I, I remember when I first came, there were people other than the superintendents that didn't have degrees that would work their way up, and they were specialties or... Or they you had cannot some. replace experience. You can't. And we are trying to replace experience with degrees. And don't get me wrong, I have two of them. I think re- degrees are really, really important. But nothing replaces that time in the field, the people that have run it and seen it a million times. 100%. So we need to be better at retaining those people and cultivating those people. Mm-hmm. I like that, especially like our field people going through layoffs, things like that. Like you are valued, and we understand what you bring to the table. I think everyone needs to make sure that that is a known statement in our industry. Well, and that's definitely something we've struggled with. Hundred percent. And the first, the first people that get cut are the field people in a lot of a lot of different places, and that's it. And there goes your experience. And I, I, like I said, I can make the best plan in the world, but if I don't have a directional driller that can drill worth a damn, it's no. There's no point of mm-hmm. even trying to do it sometimes it it will cost you time and money well let's go back to something you said earlier you never really thought of yourself or thought why you couldn't do anything because you were female and there are a lot of people in our industry who I know they kind of cringe when they think about it but people lead with being female sometimes for the wrong reason Um, and I like that you don't really think about it and I like that you've been an advocate for lead with your experience lead with your uh, education, not necessarily the fact that you are getting ahead because you're filling a quota. But let's talk about the type A females in the industry because it's not always the best <laughs> the best scenario, but they can produce the best results. So I would consider you type A. Have you noticed things in management style that have helped you progress versus maybe aren't the best fit, maybe are culture differences, things like that? Well, I definitely wouldn't have gotten to do what I did without being having my personality and, mm-hmm. and making sure people knew that that was my goal and that's what I wanted to do. And I, when yeah. I did that, I didn't just say, I want to do it. It's, this is what my goal is. You strategized it. How, <laughs> how would, how, the, what steps do I need to take to accomplish that? Exactly. Um, and then putting my position, myself in position and it's, to do that. Mm-hmm. It, it's, um, but I'll never forget uh, my first, re- I had one of my first reviews at a company, and it came back that I had an aggressive personality. And this is when I realized <laughs> you were labeled aggressive. I was. Really I'm aggressive. so proud of you. <laughs> but this is when I realized it wasn't that uh, we had an issue with an A type personality. It was a wish- an issue on how we view things. Okay. Um, and I said to the the vice president at the time, I said, you know, you hired me. Because I was somebody who was assertive and could get things done and spoke my mind. This is why you hired me. And now instead of saying you're an assertive person or you, you get projects done, it's written almost as a, a, a negative. Right. And then fairness, we all of us with atypical personalities mellow with age. And I haven't heard of any. It really does happen. I, I When? I haven't mellowed. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the great oh, – somebody told me you'll – there hasn't been a, a head company man that hasn't mellowed with age. 
And when I when I ta- when I've gone through this and I can see it, so I'm confident it will happen. But I think we need to look at uh, operations people in general have a very assertive. This is my goal. This is what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. And we just need to look at it in a different perspective. It's not that they didn't realize what they were saying. Um, that's just what they thought about. It wasn't and how that would affect everybody mm-hmm. in the conversation. So uh, from there on, I man- mentioned that and he's like, Oh, that's a good point. And I never heard about it for again. Um, <laughs> so as I mentioned before, did they panic or did they just kind of change their vantage point? <laughs> I don't think they changed anything. I let my, I spoke my piece and I went on with life and I never saw it in a review since. So, <laughs> Um, but I, I just don't think it's something they had thought about. Number mm-hmm. one, how it would make me feel. Um, we, we occasionally have to think about feelings. Um, but And also what the perception was when you see that in a, an HR file. And, yeah. Um, the, it's just the wrong um, word there. They needed like to wrong use. phrasing. Yeah. And uh, at one point, as I said, Murphy had 75% um, eight, eight high females in their mm-hmm. Julian completion group for offshore. It you hired these people because of that skill set and we were successful because of that skill set and it was just just a change in the industry it's not good or bad it's just changing and we need to change and adapt that's what makes us important a-type women though i mean they're a-type men too don't get me wrong and they are studs of industry and we appreciate them but a-type women can be some of the hardest people to train when they're rising through the ranks is there a better way to manage that I, again, I don't look at it as so much as men and women, or mm-hmm. it's a personality. Yeah, drive over gender. Um, yeah, I like that. I, I, I would. It's harder to teach people that think they know everything. <laughs> I'll give you that. Um, My I, mother is agreeing with you. <laughs> I, so I will say that I definitely have that drive, but I was always teachable and always asked mm-hmm. questions. So it, to me, it's as a mentor or as, as your or as the manager, you need to set your job to set people up for success. For you. So if you have somebody that's so assertive, yeah. um, sometimes it's knocking them down a peg and letting them, let you them know, fail. Let them fail. Sometimes it's putting them with a the person. Sometimes you put them with the opposite personality. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just depends. That's your manager's job. That's your job as a, as a, to train people and get them, get the best out of them, whatever personality type it is. <laughs> I do like that. Um, where do you see our industry going? What do you think is going to be the results of this prolonged downturn? Because arguably we haven't seen anything quite like this since the 80s. And it was the age of consolidation, but we rose like a phoenix out of it. So what do you project happening? Is there an upside? I think the challenge. Yes, there's a challenge. There's a challenge, but there's always an upside. I'm a half a glass half full. Um, I think you're starting to see people um, who want to be in the industry are in the industry for persevering through it. Right. There's they love what they do. They love the industry. They're not just here because. You know, they they think it's they can make good money or yeah. they, their mom and dad told them they should do it. It's more about <laughs> no, and that you're laughing, but you know that happens, especially all the time. in college, all the time. <laughs> um, so you're gonna get, I think you're gonna get a lot of really great people that are holding on. The industry will change again, and we'll they we tend to reinvent ourselves in the same way. So w- that's a good point. 
we tend to reinvent ourselves in the exact same way as before. So right now we're super focused on unconventional and it's a completely different skill set of conventionals Mm -hmm. or offshore or whatever it is. So my concern right now is so many people under the age of in the mid thirties and under have only seen unconventional true and their adaptability is based on unconventional. And what is our industry going to do when then we have the next, reinvention and mm-hmm. we need a different skill set so there's going to definitely be some bumpy roads when that happens i was definitely um but i would love i would love to see the industry still keep some of the people that have those experiences mm-hmm. and value those um that are different than unconventionals we get so pegged into unconventionals right now um, because that's what the majority of the industry is doing but we forget there's tons of other opportunities other places mm-hmm. Since you are so good at protecting the field, what advice do you have to the operations guys, to the field guys, to the production engineers that may be going through the highs or the very low lows right now? Hmm. I guess keep plugging away at it. I would encourage people, a lot of times they do it based off of who's the most expensive. Mm-hmm. I would like to keep, um, I'd like to make the argument to keeping the most experienced versus. Um, the, and I know it stinks for the people that are um, lower down the line, but yeah. you can. I can always train more people. I can't replace experience. That's true. And so I would encourage people to keep um, a diversified workforce from the standpoint of experience. When I talk about diversity, I want to know what experience you have. That's the only thing that matters to me mm-hmm. is what have you seen, what have you done, and how do you help the company? So making sure you don't cut your nose off to spite your face when you start having to make those really hard decisions yeah. is finding the balance. And the balance for your company might be one experienced people, um, two people you can train. Find that balance mm-hmm. so you can you don't lose the field knowledge. You don't learn lose the, um, the work history, the work knowledge that's there from different people, and the business knowledge and your company knowledge. It's just it's going to be hard. We still have a lot a lot to I think downsizing to go and it's never Mm -hmm. fun it's never fun well we are wrapping up very quickly here but before we do can you tell us about a day in your life um how do you stay organized how do you uh or how are you proactive instead of reactive what are your tips tricks and like honestly that secret sauce that has kept you ahead uh as opposed to you know just going with the masses uh, I am actually old school. I keep all my notes in books. All of you influencers write your notes down. I love that. Not one of you does any typing. <laughs> no, I, I, when I do, I, I do do typing when I have to generate them, but I keep... Of course. Um, I also, um, I had this happen and it taught me a very good lesson. I was in a hurricane or had a hurricane impact. I keep all of my, when I'm drilling completions... Um, if I'm doing a really important work over, I'll keep, I carry that stuff around on paper. Yeah. Um, your battery is on your, your computers only last so long. And then what are you going to do? Exactly. So, what you going to do? <laughs> and, um, as I said, rigs run 24 seven. So figure, so that's what one of my big things. Make sure you have the key information regardless of what mother nature throws at you. Um, my, I also keep a written day timer, so I'm like I'm really old school. <laughs> you really are old school. <laughs> I am, and I'm that's, I'm nostalgic. A lot of my friends say I should be, have been born in the 1950s when it comes to this. But um, <laughs> so I in the morning I call every single one of my pumpers. I have a I call well I at least call everyone in my field. So I have 
four, one, two, three, four. I have five fields now, so I mm-hmm. call everybody and I talk to them on the phone. I don't. Um, I try not to send messages via text message because a lot of my people are in a different generation and texting is not the best way to communicate with them so i always try to identify with everybody who i work with um, on my team and uh, when i that i and i always use the words work with because it doesn't you're not above them mm -mm. you either succeed together or you fail together yep and so i anyway so i talk to them every single morning um sometimes they beat me out of the house and i have to call them back so (laughs) um so i go to the office and i normally um work look at my production data really quick and run through it um, make sure we don't have any big issues and since i'm now doing um planning for drilling right now that's taking a lot of my time mm-hmm. um, but i'm also doing a work over so we're i'm making sure they have everything that they need i'm making sure that all the permits and everything are in order for those so how do you stay organized is it just through writing it down or are you just very good at compartmentalizing probably a both <laughs> um it's one of those things you put out the fires first every day yeah. um i haven't signed invoices for two weeks so that's the first thing i'm going to do on um on monday and people have to get paid um and you know just try to stay on top of it i try yeah. to be proactive i try to have a schedule um i but it's just it's a it's a challenge every single day when you're in a smaller company it's a challenge to stay on top of it and uh, i'm also very i'm decent at delegating when mm-hmm. i have things i need to do um i try to make sure i have all my histories and well bore schematics updated yeah as best as possible because that makes my decision making quicker yeah um i talk to my reservoir engineer regularly about does this make financial sense Mm -hmm. and just keep everybody in the loop i have briefly touched on it but managing up is actually a bigger part of my job than managing down because if you want to get in front of decision making and on a smaller company you make a lot more decisions but for bigger companies you need to start um, managing up at the beginning of the process not when you need something mm-hmm. so being able to plant those seeds and these are the challenges and these are the co- you know just start you need to prep them as much as you need to prep the field guys about what you're going to do mm-hmm. and i think that's a skill that took me a long time to learn and i didn't realize how important it was until i had some major issues on some wells and they already knew that i could make it a good decision and i'd already thought about that yeah. so it's Def, that's definitely something I spend a lot of time with. Um, I tend to meet with people in person. Okay. Um, I like that. <laughs> I really, I think that's important. I mean, I, I use email to send documents that are important and things like that, but I don't want to have a conversation on a doc and on text or on emails. So um, that's important mm-hmm. um, in my life. What else? Mm-hmm. I have a list of people I call for questions. That's the other thing. People, I like that. That's so good to say. And I have a list um, on whether it's two a.m. in the morning, and I have <laughs> now this. When I have a, a huge question, uh, because the small companies you don't have all the experts around, so you have to build your own experts. Exactly. Um, I have a list of, of people that it, for now I have multiple lists because I have all the. <laughs> yeah. But um, who's good at what? Who can help you with what? If they don't know it, who do they? They know somebody. So I ask people questions all the time. I am constantly learning, especially since I started production i there's not a day that has gone by that i haven't gone hmm, that's interesting i've never <laughs> heard of, i've never seen that problem before so it's uh, being uh, it's a ver- i'm very happy to have that experience and mm-hmm. have the people in my lives that are willing to teach me and take the time to do that absolutely i love that what is a book podcast or other resource that you would recommend that's brought you value 
Um, this is actually a good story. I was um, helping with the interns when I was at Murphy, and there was an intern who was in an offshore production and uh, or health and safety. I can't remember which one. And uh, some one of the engineers brought him up and says, you need to talk to Jacqueline. <laughs> and I said, okay, what am I supposed to talk Be to like, about? Uh-oh. <laughs> so we, we started talking, and we talked about um, – we were talking a lot about people and how people communicate. And uh, this was a very fascinating conversation I didn't expect to have. And this young man, um, this apparently conversation went really well. He brought me two books, and one of them I absolutely love, and I've read it multiple times. It's How to Make Friends and Influence People. And I think this is really important as we get to the digital age and AI and everything else. Mm -hmm. Um, Nothing can replace um, personal time uh, with people. Mm -hmm. And being able to grow and develop those relationships. So at 2 a.m. when you have a problem, they're like, oh, Jacqueline's calling for a reason. It's not like... (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, But it's also how you build teams and how you make people feel valued. And Mm -hmm. um, that's... I think we're kind of getting away from that. It's not just a quick little email picture saying, happy birthday. It's picking up the phone and spending five minutes saying, happy birthday, you want to have wine or whatever. Exactly. So it's very important mm-hmm. to, so that's why. I Making think it, people feel valued is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And think about the people that you know that are really good at sales. That's yeah. why, why the, um, the book to begin with, Mr. Yeah. Carnegie wrote it because he was a salesman. Think about the people that are really good salespeople. They are, they do those things. They listen. Mm-hmm. Well, Jacqueline, thank you so much for taking the time this evening. You have brought such value. I love your story. I love how adaptable you are, and I love how you rose to the challenge and still continue to do every day. So thank you for everything you do for our industry and what you provided here today. Thank you, Catherine, for having me. Talk about a deep water dive. Things certainly have changed since Macondo, but offshore is without question an oil field frontier. Jacqueline is the very definition of ambitious and agile. These characteristics have landed her the title she always wanted, driller. Lessons learned here? If you want it, ask for it, get it. As y'all know, 2020 is going to be a killer year and there is a lot to do. So head on over to the website at www.thecrudeaudacity.com to check out upcoming events, sponsorship opportunities, and what is happening around the oil patch. Hold on, one more thing before you go. If today's episode brought you any sort of value, go online, rate, review, subscribe. Also, if you have any topics or influencers you would like us to feature, you can get in touch with us via Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or the website at www.thecrudeaudacity.com. Thanks so much for your engagement, and until next week, Give them hell.